Welcome to the History of Networking at the Network Collective, where we drag all the skeletons out of the wiring closet. In this episode, we are talking about the history of Quick. So sit back, grab a pile of cookies, and listen in as we meld with the finest minds in networking. So let's begin here. Tell me a little bit about yourself, where you work, how you pronounce your name, Jana, right? Jenna, yes. Okay, Jenna, right. Okay, because I don't want to get it right while we're doing this, or wrong while we're, I don't want to get it wrong while we're doing this. That would be a bad thing. Uh, Anyway, so give me a little bit of your background, just so that uh, we have some sense of where you came from, and, you know, start down the path of trying to figure out why we need another, yet another transport protocol. (laughs) We can start with that question. Um, actually, and I'll walk, work my background into this. Okay, that's cool. I don't think we need another transport. We just need one that we can deploy. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you look at the history of transports, it's, it's, I think it's littered with corpses of dead transports, right? We've got BCCP, we've got SCTP, we've got... Um, other transports, which we, we sort of research transports that never really made it out there. So that was obviously, has always been a need beyond TCP since for a long time, we've always wanted more features. SCTP embraced some features, um, multi-streaming, basically avoidance of head-of-line blocking and, and, and multi-homing to allow for mobility, transport-level mobility of connections and so on. And then later on, we became more aware and, and, and more sensitive to security uh, and, and privacy issues, and so we wanted to roll in crypto into this stuff. Um, and there are a couple of proposals since then over the past, I'd say, uh, over the past decade that have come up for transports that have those properties, but none of them have really made it out there. So, so what's wrong with TCP itself? I mean, is there like performance issues people are seeing in the field, or is it just, you know, old and moldy? Or I mean, I'm just trying to... Sure. Um, so, so TCP isn't one thing. Uh, it's a framework, effectively, right? It's a protocol that allows for multiple implementations to do multiple things. And the multiple things that I'm talking about here are multiple congestion controllers, multiple ways of doing loss recovery. Uh, there are a lot of heuristics that one can build into the TCP machinery to make it efficient and effective. But there are some things about the protocol that are still fundamentally a part of the protocol, and we try to change them. One of them is the handshake. Let's just go with that for now. Um, the handshake itself is basically, there's a three-way handshake uh, that is required for DCP connections to be established that requires at least one round trip of time before you can send any data. Um, in a time when, when um, speed of light is basically the limitation that we are fundamentally dealing with, we're trying to reduce the number of round trips that take for us to transfer data to, to, to deliver content. Um, that can be a pretty significant uh, a part of the latency of delivering data, um, that one round trip time. So TCP has a, 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 a solution for this, or, or let me not say TCP has a solution for this. A solution for reducing this round trip time during the handshake was proposed for TCP called TCP Fast Open. Um, this is a wonderful idea, and I I supported it from the from from the moment it was, it was proposed, and uh, it's 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 a great idea, except it's difficult to deploy. And that happens because we have um, allowed this internet to flourish in ways, this internet basically has become successful beyond our wildest imaginations. 
right? So what's happened as a, as a, as a matter of course over time is that we've had a lot of devices that have come into the network, which we call lovingly call middle boxes, um, have many other names for them, but we'll just go with middle boxes because I'm assuming this is, you know, a, a, fam- a family friendly program and we wouldn't want to use <laughs> the other words. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, middle boxes um, um, are basically devices in the network that, that look at the transport headers, look at transport information, transport semantics and so on, and do things to connections, including connection termination. This is very common, by the way. Many cell providers, for instance, do connection termination in the network so they can do their own shenanigans on the other side, on the, on the radio side of the network. Um, this is really common in SATCOM as well. You absolutely. want to terminate. You want to yeah. terminate coming into the satellite and run your own transport above. That's right. Below. And Cisco basically did something with SCTP there, if I remember correctly, a while ago, uh, like two decades ago. They did. They had a product that did SCTP over the satellite channel. Um, they terminated TCP connections on the two sides. Um, but yeah, it's it's it's. Its middle boxes have made it very difficult to really make protocol changes, protocol level changes to TCP. So fundamentally, TCP has a lot of things that are part of the protocol that are difficult to move because of middle boxes oftentimes. Um, then the, the other problem is that there are clients which move very slowly. This is basically TCP is implemented inside the operating system and it is difficult to get everybody to move to newer versions of operating systems, especially you know old Windows users, and old Android users, it's very hard to move them onto newer versions of operating systems. So these things are, are, are real, real problems in terms of deployment. If you want to ship a product and somebody says, and, and, and basically, uh, if you if you say, I'd like to ship this product, and then you get the response that it's going to take about you know, seven to eight years for you to ship this product, that just doesn't seem like a satisfactory answer. And if you're going to sit on your hands for seven years anyway, waiting for this to get deployed, you're going to be thinking about you know other ways of doing things so that you don't have to wait seven years the next time around. So that's sort of where Quake comes from. It's our answer to trying to find a way to deploy new transport features um, without having to sit on our hands for another seven years the next time we want to ship new things. So, so this is basically a problem of accretion of features over time that were a good idea at one time. But the protocol was built, TCP was built, with these features built in, so they can't be removed. And so unlike when we marshal data, where we use TLVs and stuff to make sure that we can remove and add stuff, the protocol itself was set up to have some very specific parameters, which is a good lesson in not only protocol design, but also in network design and other areas that if you build things into the base, be very, very sure that it's something that's really going to be needed five years from now, 10 years from now, whatever it happens to be. I actually think I heard something a little different to make sure I is it's the opposite problem too, right? Where you want to add a new feature to TCP in order to roll out, you have to wait seven years for everyone to get the feature. Did I hear that right? That too. So it's actually a great point. I mean, the point you're talking about is ossification. Effectively. One of them is ossification. The other point is of delay in, in rollout times. And they're both real. So ossification is this problem where you don't have, I was going to wait to see how long it takes before, you know, people who are familiar with this content will be like, okay, how long does it take before the word ossification comes up in this conversation? And it's been what, like five minutes? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'd say it's, 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 it's been long enough. Um, ossification is this problem where it doesn't matter, even if you use TLB for that matter, um, there are some TLBs which will be more common in the network than other TLBs. 
and those get ossified because the assumptions assumptions are made not around design but around runtime around what you see in the network when you're building a network metal box it's often uh, built for a particular purpose and that particular purpose is usually i mean let's let's say for example all all application protocols ought to be equal but http is you know always more important than others right so you have metal boxes that are geared towards doing things for http so in in much the same way you can have different tlvs even if you were doing a generic design of a protocol at runtime when you're on the network people who are building optimizers for the network are optimizing for the traffic that they see in the network so they put a stick a probe in the network what are the most common tlvs that you see and now you go optimize for them so the protocol design lesson here that we learned and we tried to we have tried to embody in quick and we've been very very um, uh, in general quite uh, active about this is that there is nothing that you can do at design time to prevent runtime ossification there's one thing you can do let me not say i'm sorry i scratch this bit if you can <laughs> <laughs> um there's 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 one thing that we've um, uh, learned and that's that's that there is um you have to build in protections at design time for ossification that can happen at runtime and the key thing the, the most important piece here of the puzzle is encryption you simply can't allow anything to be visible in the network because anything that is visible in the network eventually gets ossified if i have a, i'll give you a, an example of this um this is oh i never did introduce myself did i i should probably do that at some point yep <laughs> um so so my name is janah ayengar i work at fastly which is a um, um a a uh, a cdn company it's a it's an um um edge platform um and it's 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 basically uh, a a company that's been around for 6 years and it's a wonderful small company i used to be at google before this uh where i started working on quick i joined google um and i joined in the quick team it was an effort that was underway when i joined and i spent uh, about under 5 years um working there on quick and i continue working on quick at the idf and at fastly um before google i was an academic i was teaching i was a professor before which i was doing my grad work but i worked in transport for about 18 years now um i worked on sctp way back in the day i worked on a number of other projects since then uh, on lebat uh, congestion control on on other congestion controllers also on other transport projects um and um we i've seen sort of transports you know sort of try to come up try to meet needs and then sort of die out and not really get deployed and and uh, quick carries a lot of those lessons that we've learned as a community over past so many years so what kind of made you convince to go from academics to working in the industry developing protocols i'm just curious because that's a journey not many people actually make so it's 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 um two very uh, uh two things access to data and um the ability to de- deploy things to ship things 
They're very hard to do in academia, uh, at least in our discipline. Um, I had a lot of things that I was working on and a lot of ideas and I built some protocols, but it was hard to get them deployed, hard to really figure out how to tune them to real world data. Um, and that's a gap in some ways between academia and industry at this point. Uh, it's something that I would like to fix. I've always wanted to bridge these gaps between academia and industry. Um, and there are exam many examples of this, uh, like about 1,500 congestion controllers that have been built by academics, but none of them has gotten deployed. Um, and that's, again, I think that it suffers from these two problems of not having enough data to run your congestion controller on and not having the ability to actually ship it. Yeah. It's interesting because every time I read a research paper, there's always some trivial or not so trivial implementation to show a principle that they're trying to get to. And then you read it and you're like, the principle's cool, but that's never going to be deployed. You know, it's just never going to happen in the real world because no one's ever going to deploy that whatever thing that they developed um, right. in their lab. Well, I mean, to, in all fairness, sometimes the point of a paper is to simply make that principle known, right? For, for people who are working in fields where, you know, you might, yeah. you might make a principle and then you go on and, 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 and use it in your work. And that's a fine thing to have as well. Um, it's just that if, it's a little frustrating sometimes when I can't influence directly, when I have to rely on indirect influence, wait for somebody to pick up my work rather than actually directly try and influence deployment. And that's not for everybody, right? I mean, some people are happy with indirect influence um, and, and some people need to see their work actually get deployed on the internet. And, and I happen to have that, that itch and I needed to scratch it. And okay. Really yeah, no, that's cool. That's cool. All right. So you're working in, this area of transport, you're doing research for a long time and teaching um, people about transport protocols and stuff. And then, so what convinced you to join Google specifically to work on Quick? Was there some specific thing you saw in TCP or what was going on that kind of said, all right, we really need a new protocol here? Right. So uh, there were a couple of things. Um, there's, there's been this move towards reduced latency in the stack. TCP and the transport have effectively become... Um, um, platforms, right? I mean, everything gets built on top of these things. And I wouldn't, I shouldn't say just TCP. HTTP has become sort of the narrow waste. Yeah, I was, I was actually going to ask about that. It seems to me that TCP is almost duplicative of what's going on in HTTP nowadays, because everything runs on top of HTTP. Right. So yes, to some degree, things like flow control in HTTP2, at least, that's been like subsumed by HTTP above TCP. So TCP effectively is becoming a channel on which we run audit testing services. And that's actually a fine thing to happen. I mean, this is one of the core, again, when something gets ossified, you just, it just becomes part of your platform, part of your fabric, right? At that point, what you want to do is to remove all the costs that there are in that becoming part of the fabric. You want to eliminate the cost, you want to eliminate latency in particular, because you can stack things on top and get many features, the one thing you cannot get is time. If you lose time down below in the fabric, then you can't gain it back up in, in, above uh, 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 that, that thing. So you can't gain any time that you've lost in TCP, for example. And so that's one of the important distinctions or one of the important things that Quick brings to the table is uh, each, uh, TCP basically has a, a single, it's just a connection with, with uh, a single sequence of bytes and Quick gives you what is called multi-streaming which is uh, multiple streams of bytes. And right. So it might be helpful for people who are listening to go back and say, TCP is essentially supposed to emulate 
a circuit or a stream on top of a packet switch network. That's what it's trying to do. But when it was designed, it was designed with a single stream in mind, that you would have a continuous stream of bytes that would be shipped over the network. The application would never know if something was dropped because TCP would take care of all of that stuff. Right. And um, quick is, 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 so with that, with that background, um, that, that, that becomes a limitation uh, when, so in, in trying to do this, TCP basically, uh, um, you, you, when you want to send multiple objects on a single TCP connection, which is what HTTP tries to do, at least HTTP 1.1 and, and, and later versions, um, you have multiple objects back to back going over a single connection. And that's fine in general, but if those objects are independent of each other, TCP doesn't see structure in the stream. The application clearly does. There are objects. TCP goes, I don't know what objects are. These are all just bytes that I'm transmitting. And the receiving TCP does not see structure either. And so if there's uh, uh, the receiving TCP will deliver all these bytes in strict order up to the application. No matter if the entire, if there's loss, for example, if there's a gap, if there's a hole in what it's received for object one, object two has been received in its entirety. TCP will not deliver object two up. To the receiving application, it'll wait for the hole in object one to be fixed and then deliver object one and then deliver object two. So the, the strict serialization that TCP enforces, and that's too strict for, for many applications. And so what most applications tend to do to solve this is they run multiple TCP streams, which has its own downsides, right? That's its own, that's its own set of problems. That's right. And and it has exactly it has it has basically you have to establish multiple TCP connections, which can lead to multiple points of failure. For example, um, where you have one connection that's established, but subsequent connections are not established for whatever reason, um, uh, it caused it. There's more cost in terms of latency because connection setup takes time. Um, multiple connections means that there are multiple congestion controllers at play, and if there's a congested network that they are sharing, then they are fighting each other on bandwidth, and you can end up with fairly diverse rates on multiple connections um, at any given point in time. So there's no coordinated way in which this can be done. And, and multiple streams in Quick is actually a more, uh, assuming that's a way, using multiple TCP connections is a hackish way of dealing with the problem. Using multiple streams within a single connection is the more principled way of doing this. Um, and the principled way here is say there's one connection, that means there's one congestion context. And so there's one bandwidth estimate for the connection is effectively. And then within that bandwidth, you try and share it between multiple, across multiple streams by using scheduling and priorities and other things. But, um, but, but there's one connection establishment and so on and so forth. So just a brief, perhaps a brief summary of what Quick is might uh, be useful. Should I do that now, you think? Yeah, yeah go right ahead. So Quick was uh, born at, uh, at Google. Um, and it was born to basically as a as a continuing uh, uh, project in some ways. It, the predecessor to not the predecessor. The thing that happened before Quake at Google and at the IDF also it was HTTP and and its public form or its IDF form of HTTP two. Speedy and HTTP two basically did uh, uh, multiple streams and so on within a TCP connection, but they replaced uh, they they added and replaced a whole bunch of functions up in HTTP. Uh, so it was basically a thing that sat about TCP and below HTTP semantics, providing multiple streaming, object interleaving within a single connection, and so on and so forth, and flow control, 
uh, among objects and so on and so forth. Uh, ideally, you want all of these to go into the transport. But what happened was that there are multiple streams, flow control per stream and things, but then they didn't want to take on the whole project of replacing the transport as well. So they like, you know, serialized it all and sent it over one TCP connection. That was a speedy HTTP work. Subsequently, the quick work was basically continuing this work down into the transport. So you take things like multi-streaming per object flow control, and then add more transport bells and whistles and make that a new transport protocol. So quick effectively replaces um, the transport TCP and uh, uh, crypto TLS or, or, or doesn't replace TLS, but Quicken's original form did replace uh, uh, the TLS layer. Uh, in its original form, meaning the Google version of it, and a, bi a big chunk of HTTP2. So it subsumes all of that into one unified transport. So the value of Quick is that it basically takes this piece of the stack, which arguably is one of the most uh, is one of the most uh, used, you know, uh, uh, parts in, in 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 the internet stack, which is HTTP, TLS, and TCP, and optimizes it by building basically vertical integration into one single protocol. So for context, what year is this we're talking about when Quick is being developed, just so we have some sense like of what else is going on in the industry about the same time? So this is about 2000, uh, I think the effort to, so I, I don't know exactly when it started. I, th I think it's about 2011, 2012. 2012 uh, is when the project actually started at Google, I think. Um, I joined Google in 2013. Um, that's when I started working on it, and it had already been underway for about a year or so, um, if I remember. If I remember correctly, uh, the the uh, I think at that time, HTTP two was was still in 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 had it already gotten standardized. Yeah, I think so. I think it had already gotten standardized by then, meaning that the, the RFC had already been already shipped, if I remember. Yeah. but yeah, this was uh, around that time. Um, the IETF process, there was a barb off at the IETF in 2015. There was a boff to create a working group in 2016, and we created a working group uh, which had its first meeting in October of 2016. So about two years ago, so we created the working group at the IETF. So yeah, so 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 Quick basically replaces these parts of the stack, um, and the the the. The important piece is not simply that it's replacing those pieces of the stack, it's vertically integrating. I'll give you an example of this, right? The handshake, Quick's handshake, which was and continues to remain like this, or uh, similar in spirit anyways, is that the same handshake, the same round trip is used for both the TLS and the transport handshakes. So for context, when you have a stack that is HTTP, TLS, and TCP layered in that order, um, you first have to establish a TCP connection. And after that connection is established, TLS establishes its connection. Because that's the way in which things happen in a layered stack. The bottom layer has to establish its connection first, and then the layer above it establishes its connection and so on. Right, yeah. Um, so you threw a handshake for TCP to verify the connections there. And, you know, then you have to do your through a handshake for TLS because you've got to exchange a nonce and a private key or a public key and all this other stuff. Yeah, it's a couple of round trips there. With Quick, however, what we what we did was we we basically right from the beginning, the goal was to uh, uh, not have separate handshakes for separate components of the transport, but to have one handshake for an, what we call an encrypted transport. 
So you establish, you do all, all the functions that are required for these different uh, handshakes are all performed together. So that was part of the original quick uh, 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 protocol at Google. That was the, when I, say, I shouldn't say original quick protocol. This was the proprietary uh, protocol at Google. The IDF uh, version is quite different and we've made a lot of changes to it over the past couple of years, but we've retained these functional aspects. So uh, the IDF form of it, the Google form of it had uh, uh, a, a proprietary Google crypto handshake and it is now, uh, the IDF form of it now, um, uses TLS 1.3 for the handshake because that gives us what we want, which is zero RTG data. Um, and we are able to do um, this functionally in the IDF form as well, which is the, the transport and the crypto handshake together in the same round trip time. So um, we were able to also have data being sent with most connection handshakes, meaning that we get zero round trip time for most handshakes, meaning that a client can send a handshake packet and immediately follow it with data packets. That's uh, what we call zero RTP handshake, meaning that you don't have to wait for any round of times before actually you start sending data on a connection. This is for repeat connections to the same server. So if you've spoken to a server before, then you can guess the server's credentials and say, oh, by the way, I think you're, you're, you know, or, or you can, if the server retains state about you, then you can tell the server, by the way, I have this ID that I had from you earlier. TLS 1.3 has this feature. So we are able to use that. And, 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 and now did TLS get that from Quick or did Quick, did, was it separately? So Quick, Quick happened uh, before TLS 1.3. Um, and I think TLS 1.3 definitely uh, benefited from seeing that there was value first in having zero RTD that you know company like google was willing to invest money and make it happen and then other companies were also asking for it um and the standardization effort was was independent of quick but i think it was to some degree uh, motivated by um by by the the, the quick experience uh, that we had so yeah quicks definitely had had influence in terms of uh ts 1.3 happening eventually after that Okay. So you get this idea, you're starting to deploy this protocol. How are you deploying it? Because you said one reason you left academics was to be able to deploy it. So, I mean, give us a little bit about the history of who decided to deploy it, how you decided to deploy it so that you could actually test it and actually make this work in the real world. Right. So this is actually a fascinating fascinating part of the big story, I think. Um, I think this is also one of the unique uh, one of the things that's unique about Quake itself is the way it was de developed was that deployment and de development and deployment went hand in hand. Um, so at Google, um, the, the Quick team was made up of three components. There was Chrome. I was part of the Chrome team. Um, there was the GFE, which is the Google front end or the server team, basically. And then there was YouTube. So we had people from YouTube who were also engaged and involved in the project full-time, basically. And I think of that as basically the client, the server, and the content provider. And if you have all three pieces of this puzzle, effectively, that those are the three pieces of building a transport anyways. Those are the three pieces you need to build an effective transport. Um, and we had all those three. And so we were able to basically build it and ship it inside of Chrome. So we built this on top of UDP which allowed us to ship it in as part of applications. And that was the reason that it was built on top of UDP. So we could build it in and ship it as part of Chrome. Um, and, and on the Google servers, we were able to ship it on the Google servers. And then we were able to basically have, uh, Chrome has an experimentation framework, um, 
which is used for doing A/B experiments on various features to see, you know, which one works better and which one we should use, and which various for various features. And we use that to do a lot of testing and measurement. So we basically would have uh, uh, users get opted into the quick experiment on a small, a small fraction of users get opted into the quick experiment, and we would have a control group for them where they would be using TCP and HTTP2, and some users would be using quick. Um, and they would do the same requests and everything else, but they would some of them would get it over quick, and some of them. Would get it. So this is this is just like running a canary in a data center fabric, essentially, like we might do in a in a hyperscale data center fabric. You have a lot of people out there using it. You try it. If it doesn't work, it falls back automatically. Nobody knows the difference, other than maybe a slight performance decrease. But if it works, you actually see a slight performance increase, or maybe a major performance increase. So you know, it's it's the ability to canary something. That's exactly what it was. I, 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 this is this was although we what we were doing is we were looking at, and yes and and we were looking at the metrics we were looking at were various uh, user experience metrics for YouTube for example uh, for Google search for instance and we were using these to drive our work. So we were looking at this and obviously at the beginning you know things weren't looking great but then we iterated. And that was the other thing is that we were able to iterate and shift. Chrome has a pretty rapid uh, version. We were able to ship versions to clients fairly regularly of the order of uh, um, um, a couple of months. So that was very useful to have that iteration cycle because we could ship new things to clients uh, quite rapidly. And we had then basically clients running a new version of something. And we would then look at the numbers from this new version and, and, and we evolved more more finer ways of experiment doing A-B experiments. But uh, the high order bit is that we were able to do a lot of A-B experimentation with real users, real workloads on the internet. Because ultimately, we are all trying to engineer for this one network that we have. Uh, it's, not, it's not some arbitrary network that you can try and recreate in a lab. The internet is unique, it's, and it's a very unique snowflake. It has its own warts and everything else, and you need to optimize for this network because that's the network that people are using it on, uh, using the, your products on. So we were able to develop it iteratively by having uh, uh, versions ship over this network, uh, ship to, to users, and they, they use the protocol over this network um, for real workloads. So in the process, were you also testing for other things like doing multi-path, other other ways of looking at the data other than just the difference between quick and TCP, or is this really just focused on the difference between quick and TCP, like structuring how you marshal the data in the web page and stuff like that? So, um, the for the for the development of quick, we were mostly looking at just quick and TCP. That's that's what we were interested in. But in parallel, there were other efforts to change TCP as well. Um, one of them is uh, one of them was the BBR congestion controller, which uh, is basically a new congestion controller for TCP. So there were ch changes in server-side TCP that, that were also being played with at Google. And there were A-B experiments to try and figure out if, you know, changing the congestion controller of the server-side, how much improvement does it give you and so on. So, yeah, but, but, but for the purposes of our Quicks development, at least that's what we were looking at. We were simply looking at um, TCP. Okay. Cool. So you have it out deployed, you're testing it, you're cycling through stuff pretty quickly because, of course, you have this testing framework in Chrome that allows you to switch versions of Quick 
and change what you're doing. So what kind of things are you changing? I assume windowing, I assume uh, the way streaming is occurring, things like this. Yes, we, we, we did a large number of experiments. I mean, we had a lot of different things that we were doing, like the act, the frame formats for different things, for acknowledgements, for example, went through a lot of evolution over time. Um, um, the one example that I can give you very, very clearly is we had an FEC mechanism built into quick early in the day. And there was, there was some based on some some early experiments that 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 were done in the team to try and figure out if FEC might be useful. Those early experiments indicated that FEC might be useful, and so the team decided that we would build an FEC mechanism into Quick. And so building it was an onerous task in terms of engineering work. Uh, and this was one specific FEC mechanism that we had built into Quick. Um, and so we wanted to figure out if this FEC mechanism was useful or not. And and so when we put it out there, we ran a bunch of A/B tests to see um, with the FEC on and without FEC on and, and we did those experiments and we eventually and a lot of with FEC on and then other transport simpler transport things that we could play with like you know changing um, for example how how quickly pain losses were, were were retransported and so on so other things that we could do in a simpler way um, and we eventually concluded that the amount of gains we were getting from FEC and again, to be very specific, the particular form of FEC that we had implemented, which was simple parity FEC, um, was not enough to warrant the engineering effort or the code maintenance hassle that we had to do. And so we basically ripped it up. T- typically, I think that's what people find with forward error correction is that the it's faster and easier to retransmit the data than it is to try to do the forward error correction because you're having to carry enough extra bits to do the, the FEC and that extra bits being carried no matter what, not, whether or not there's an error. And then, like you said, the additional complexity in the protocol can be pretty high. Right. The additional complexity is the big one. Uh, I mean, I think there are, there are, there are, there are papers, although there, are, there is an interesting side to this where if you have, if you do have the additional bandwidth and, you know, audio video codecs have this thing where they have discrete levels that they operate at. So if you have some headroom, there may be value in sending some additional bits of parity uh, that may be usable at the, at the at the client to help with early recovery. But yeah, I mean, there are, there's, I would say this is open. Uh, in, in the, the question is open. If you can build a hybrid ARQ scheme, like, you know, an FEC plus retransmission scheme that can, that, I think looking at FEC alone on its own is not sensible. You want to look at FEC in the context of existing uh, recovery mechanisms, retransmission mechanisms, uh, and see if you can do something within that space. Um, but we didn't have the the appetite at the time to to take on this bigger problem of you know what FEC mechanism might actually uh, be useful. The FEC mechanism we had built in there wasn't wasn't really being that useful, so we decided to take it out. And this is an example of how we were able to do this iteration and 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 uh, A/B testing, and we were able to figure out which features made sense to leave in there and which features we wanted to take out, and we made up this out. Um, so the the form of quick that eventually showed up at the IETF, what we had experimented with this, we could clearly say that we, this is this FEC doesn't make sense to build into. So talk to me about the, the ITF process. So you sent it to the ITF or you brought it to the ITF. Was there a lot of pushback or was this more like, well, we know this has been experimented on, it works. Um, were, did a lot of new ideas come out of bringing it to the ITF that you thought were valuable and useful? Or I mean, I'm an ITF or so. You know, I'm always curious, even from a 
personal perspective, although I work mostly in the routing area and I think you mostly work in transport. So we probably don't overlap a lot with the stuff we're working on. Um, so that is an interesting question. I mean, the idea of is, you know, it's, it's hard to characterize the idea of response as single because the idea is everybody and everything. So it's, it's basically every response that you can imagine. Although I would say that, you know, broadly, um, there are definitely people who are very excited to see this come to the IDF because it's it's. Um, I think Google Google understood that and Google also wanted to participate in the IDF process. You know, having one inside, having a protocol inside of your just your house is not that fun when you're trying to play on yeah, it. Sure, right. So um, I think there's there's a lot more fun when everybody else is also playing the same game, so to speak. So, so there was value in bringing it certainly from the from Google's point of view. Uh, from the IDS point of view, there was value in it having had that experience. Um, there, was, there was some trepidation in terms of, you know, would Google be willing to hand off control? Because one of the big things at the IDF is that the IDF wants to have charge of the protocol. Yeah. The working group does, yes. This is actually a major problem with people who bring really cool new protocols to the ITF, is they want to figure out how I can hand the CITF and make it RFC, but I don't want to lose control of it. And the two things are mutually exclusive. You can't do that. If you're going to bring it to the ITF and RFC it, the ITF community is going to control it for the future, which may mean the community may decide to do things that you're not really happy with, but you know, right. it's just the trade-off. Right. And at that point, the question becomes for you, what do you do? You know, if, if, as, as a first mover, what is your commitment? Is your commitment to the what you have, or are you just there, you know, to pay lip service effectively to, to to the standards body, or are you actually committing to following through that the working group decides to change the protocol in a way which you don't like, and you will still go implement the new standard? And that's often a difficult line. You know, it, it's difficult for everybody involved in this process because, especially when you're when you're a, when you're a, a company as big as Google, it is uh, it's not it's 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 hard to um, get everybody on board, so to speak, uh, with the process because it's easy for a company that that's, that's that big to simply be happy with its own product and just move on with life. But uh, I think that the people who were on this project were actually quite um, had already seen the IDF process before with Speedy and HTTP two, and so they had they were familiar with what happens and and uh, to some degree they knew what they were getting into. Uh, and by they, I mean I also, because although I wasn't part of the speedy HTTP process, I've been, you know, participating in the idea for 18 years now, and uh, that's I knew what was in store more or less at the idea. Um, but it's still, you know, it needs still took some amount of just getting people to understand what it means to be. Yeah. yeah, and there's some sense of we own this, we can make competitive advantage out of it. If we give it to the ITF, we're giving it to the community, which may make the internet better, which may actually improve your bottom line profit as well. But you don't know as a company which way it's going to go when you first take it out to a public um, place like that. But if you have the appetite for it, I think the ultimate outcome is is substantially better for everybody. and And I think that's I'm, I'm, I, I, I sort of drove for that strategy, like I, I pushed for that strategy, and I think everybody was on board with that strategy at Google at least at the time. And I think we were quite, uh, um, I think that we, we were committed, uh, at Google we were committed to being part of the IDF process. And um, 
it it means to 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 respond to what you just said yes what that means is you don't simply hand off your protocol to the idf and step back and watch the watch the circus right you have to step in there and engage you have to justify right. the decisions that you made you have to argue for your position and try to get people on board with your position and you have to do the tussle you have to push and pull and do the the, the thing uh, that you have to do to make uh, technical decisions for everybody in the community not just for you um and you also have to be sympathetic to other people's points of views and you you have to be able to hear that and listen to that and respond to that with technical responses and i think we did that uh, there's been a lot of push and pull uh, to your question of has the protocol changed yeah it's changed quite a bit um there's i think there's net positive is what i would say right i mean there's obviously the things that you know that that i personally uh, i i would have liked to have been slightly different um that that some other people uh, would have liked to have been slightly that's always the case that's how it is supposed to be and you know if it was everything if i was happy with everything uh, in the protocol then you know the, the then then the the i i i'd be skeptical um but we we i think that some of the some of the key things that we that we've done uh, to the protocol over time is um is is one of the key things we've done to the protocol is basically encrypted almost all of the transport headers this is kind of new for an idea of transport this is the first idea of transport that actually has encrypted headers um um almost completely encrypted headers you, you mentioned at the earlier in the show that there was encryption needed to prevent ossification could you go into that a little bit here sure um let me lead with an example a story um which which i've documented in in, in our paper that we published last year at sicon um so we had deployed this was a, a few years ago and i say we i want to be clear again that i uh, i'm not at google anymore but i say we for the people that i work with um and the team that i was a part of so we had deployed uh, uh this version of uh, uh quick and uh so we so the, the the experimentation framework that we had in chrome at the time allowed us to control the amount of traffic you know that we had in experiment groups and we we were we weren't a large fraction yet Uh, but we were a reasonable fraction of traffic i don't remember exactly the numbers at that and slowly over time we increased the fractions and now uh, google's traffic there's a substantial amount of google traffic the last documented numbers and this is from a year and a half ago are that a uh, quick was about 35% of google's traffic in bytes um and that by some estimates is about 7 to 9% of internet traffic right so a large fraction of traffic now uh, and it's increased over the past year and a half but um the the um the story has to do with we had encrypted even then most of the header bytes uh, uh the google version of quick had encrypted most of the header bytes um there was one byte that was left uh, uh one or two bytes that were, no no there were a few bytes but there was one byte at the beginning which is the flags byte that was unencrypted and this was required because the flags byte told you where subsequent fields were and so you sort of needed to have that unencrypted so you could go pick out the other uh, subsequent you know connection id and how the length of the connection id and then you knew where the encrypted piece started by looking at the flags um so the flags also told you what type of packet it was and stuff like that so the flags was unencrypted and open now as it turned out the flags had been basically seven for most of the packets you know the byte was basically seven for most packets 
uh, that were quick. Um, and uh, what happened was that we had flipped a flag bit. Uh, this was happening after a little, after a while, after several versions, we had flipped a flag bit and we said, okay, we're going to change this flag bit because we want to do something with it. So it changed to nine, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, and then we do that, we make that change, and eventually this rolls out into Chrome, and suddenly we get these, you know, basically customer support calls. I can't reach Google using Chrome. Firefox works, Safari works, Chrome, I can't reach Google. And um, long, you know, no longer, but a lot of effort later, we discover that this is basically has to do with the flag change that we did in, in, in Quick. So what was happening was that quick packets were coming through. So I'll, I'll, I'll cut the long story short. There was a middle box, a firewall vendor that had basically created a filter for quick, right? And the match that they were using, the filter that they were used, that bit was checking to see if the first byte was seven. This was their filter. We spoke with them and they basically told us this is what, they had no idea about what the protocol was or what it did, but they knew that the first byte was seven. So they built a protocol classifier based on this fact, and they had, you know, told the enterprise users to turn off quick. So they would basically classify back incoming packets as quick based on this first byte, and then drop them on the floor. What Chrome did in that when that happened is Chrome would say, "Well, quick handshake doesn't seem to work." It would try to send handshake packet. The handshake packet would get dropped. Then it would simply use TCP. That worked perfectly. When we switched the flag to nine, what started happening was as this firewall said, oh, this is not a, obviously it wasn't a quick packet. It didn't match a quick classifier. The firewall said, I don't know what this packet is. Set it along, came in back came uh, the handshake packet from the server. It said, I still don't know what this is. Sent it along to the client. And then subsequent packet from the client comes in and it goes, okay, it's time. I still don't know what this is, but I'm gonna start dropping all of these packets on the floor now. What happened with Chrome is Chrome saw the handshake succeed and goes, oh, yeah, it works. And then sends all of its packets into a black hole. So this was like the worst of all worlds. And this is, uh, uh, this is the story that I want to share about ossification. So the thing that we realized at that time was that not only is ossification real, which we've known for a little while, it doesn't matter how you design the protocol. The people who are often building uh, uh, classifiers or building things that ossify these these fields aren't necessarily trying to understand function fully. They may not have a full sense of what's going on with the protocol or what the design primitives are or what you know functions are. They are putting a probe in the network. They're looking at TCP dump and figuring out you know what's going on with this protocol. Or they're basically looking at behavior on the wire. So long as they're able to detect some behavior that is not you know, that is that is persistent, that ends up becoming ossified very quickly. This is before Quick was a public, you know, IDF standard. This is before there were more than just Google. And this is small, this is not the giant fraction of Google traffic that it is now. And it already started to get ossified. Um, that was a wake up call for us. Uh, it's not that we had not known it before then, but this became real for us at that time. When this, so, so yeah. So that that, um... I think this also illustrates the power of unintended consequences. People not really knowing what's on their network, and just figuring if I don't know what it is, I throw it away, um, and not understanding how the protocols work. So they just assume they can throw it away without any damage being done, 
you know, well, they don't care about the damage. Well. Yeah, all of them. Well, they, I mean, from a firewall vendor's perspective, they don't know what that packet is. That's exactly right. Yeah. So but they don't care. They don't care about Quick. <laughs> to some extent, I mean, this is actually even even worse than that, I think, because the incentives are interesting and important for deployment, right? And there are incentives that are aligned for deployment of such features. I think that's, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw more and more of these sorts of functions in the network. A company, a firewall vendor, a middlebox vendor, basically had teams inside, and this was this team built classifiers, protocol classifiers. We told them, hey, you can just say to your customers, block UDP for port 443, and that will block quick. You don't need to do this classification because we're going to keep changing the header, and your classifier is not going to work tomorrow. They said, yeah, 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 we also tell them that. But this team is incented to build protocol classifiers. The more classifiers they build, that's more features that they, the more that they basically are more features that they are selling or shipping. And um, there's something to be said about having, you know, incentives that are aligned with how we want the internet to be ultimately. Um, if you're creating a company or a product where the teams are incented to only look at local optimizations and not look at what it's causing, what are the unintended consequences of it for the larger infrastructure, larger uh, ecosystem, you start having these sorts of side effects. So, so now that you've uh, deployed Quick and, you're, and it's being used extensively, what would you change? What would you do differently now? About Quick well, or? How would you have gone about it differently even, all the way from the beginning? Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, it's interesting because I haven't <laughs> really thought about that. <laughs> um, I don't know. We've learned so much along the way that it's kind of hard to say what I would have done differently because then I don't know what I would have missed. Uh, I guess it's interesting too because, you know, this is one of the few projects we've talked about where you actually had the ability to do real-time testing of your ideas. Right. And I mean, that's quite unique, isn't it? Yeah. And it's, I was, and, yeah, yeah. I, was, I was trying to figure out how I could apply that to routing, right? Sure. Yeah. And Russ is like, what, Donald? <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's a brilliant idea. I think we ought to introduce changes in the BGP and see what happens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be a good word. Um, no, but it's, it's actually, it is, I think, unique in that way. And it's also new in, in, in the transport world. A lot of the things that we did, such as the initial window choices, like the choice for what the initial window of Quick should be, were basically done through experimentation, entirely through experimentation. Because ultimately, what you're doing there to some degree is parameter tuning. And if you're doing parameter tuning, well, one of the one of the one of the reasonable ways to do parameter tuning is you put it, you you look at the system, you you turn this on, and you sort of you know, do trial and error to some degree. If you can't characterize the system um, in in any, it's hard to characterize the internet. As a closed loops, as, as a as a system that you can model and, and tune for, right? So, so trial and error on the internet tends to be something that's not completely uh, uh, that that tends to be something that does work actually. Um, um, and you have to understand why it works, of course. Uh, that requires some digging and and, and 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 trying to understand why it works. Right, understanding the system itself, like what the what the protocol stack looks like and why it's acting a certain way. Like those middle boxes you talk about, you know, trying to understand what the middle boxes are doing becomes right. a major issue. So, so that piece of it, right? I mean, so it's actually a pretty significant part of the quick uh, 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 formulation. The internet that you have right now with TCP 
is a mediated internet. It's mediated by middle boxes, and it's not clear what they're doing, right? Oftentimes, your performance, therefore, if the TCP, if, if TCP is responsible for your performance, which it often is, because the condition control and the flow controllers that are operating in a TCP connection control, uh, limit or are are responsible for how much performance you get out of a connection, those are mediated. You have an endpoint, and then you have a middle box, and maybe multiple middle boxes, and then you have the client. And you basically are talking about at least a two-segment connection, and you don't know what the middle element is doing oftentimes. You, you sort of know what the clients might be doing, you know what the servers are doing, but you don't know what middle boxes are doing because you don't, you don't have a way to even probe them. You, don't even, you can't even address them directly, publicly. You don't know if they exist on the wire. They're supposed to be a bump on the wire. And so we have this, like, so this, this, this uh, um, dark part of the internet, the not addressable, the not uh, 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 reachable, uh, not reachable is not the right word, definitely not addressable part of the internet, which is these middle boxes, which you can't probe and characterize without actually being on path. Um, and what Quick gives you is basically clean end-to-end connectivity. Right, it, it, you know that your connections are not mediated because you're uh, because it is encrypted and authenticated end to end. You will not talk to anybody else who doesn't have the keys. The TLS handshake that terminates your your application session is the same one that also terminates your um, transport session. So you know for a fact that you're talking to the server when you that has a certificate that's being presented in TLS to you. So. Um, there's value in knowing that you're on the end-to-end -end path. And the question is, how much can you do end-to-end? -end? Do you need these middle boxes? And there's a real question here. There's a whole industry at stake here to some degree. Um, that if we can do much better than, if quick performance is substantially better than TCP, and if the argument is that these middle boxes are improving TCP performance significantly, then how is it that end-to-end -end quick does substantially better than segmented? Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, we're at 53 minutes, so I think we should wrap up, unless you have another question, Donald. No, no I'm good. No more questions. All right, cool, great. Well, thanks, Janet, for coming on. And um, I guess, do you have any place where anybody can get in touch with you or not necessarily get in touch with you, but do you blog or tweet or anything else um, that uh, where people can see what you're writing or doing, working on? Sadly, uh, or maybe, you know, gladly for me, I don't do either of those two things. <laughs> 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 but people can reach me. I mean, I think, I think um, uh, I'm at the IDFs and I, I, um, I work at Fastly and... Um, That's I, enough. Yeah, I guess, I guess so. <laughs> I mean, I have my, my contact information is, is easily, um, I think, findable on yeah. and so yeah. If it's on ITF drafts, it's easy to find. Yeah, just look up the quick drafts. So, Donald, where can people get in touch with you? You can find me on Twitter at me, not you, Sharp. And no blog yet. No blogging. Against the rules. Every time we go through this, <laughs> and he always says no. All right, and I'm Russ White. You can find me at rule11.tech, or you can find me at the Network Collective on LinkedIn, Routing Geek on Twitter, whatever, whatever, whatever. Who knows? And uh, thanks for joining us for the Network Collective History of Networking. And we'll see you next time on the History of Networking where we will find some other skeleton to drag out of the wiring closet. Thanks. Thanks.